This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This week's episode is brought to you in part by PNAS's podcast, Science Sessions. Today, take five minutes and learn something new about the physical, social, and natural worlds from the frontiers of science. Subscribe to Science Sessions on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 2nd, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, we start with journalist Mike Price. He writes about a series of earthquakes under the Sea of Galilee and how scientists think that extracting water from the nearby aquifer might be triggering them. And I talk with Adrian Baez Ortega about what we can learn about cancer, evolution, and fitness from a transmissible dog tumor that's traveled the world for 8,000 years. Now we have Mike Price. He's here to talk to us about a suspected cause of earthquakes at the Sea of Galilee. Hi, Mike. Hi, how are you doing, Sarah? I'm good. So can you situate us in the world? Where is the Sea of Galilee? Sure. The Sea of Galilee is in northeastern Israel. It is probably best known by uh, readers of the Bible. Uh, It is the body of water that Jesus is said to have walked on when he was doing his miracles. And now it's a source of water for a lot of people. It's a freshwater lake. Yes, There have been a series of earthquakes um, near this lake in both the fall of 2013 and now in the summer of 2018. And there's a concern that humans are somehow doing this. So how would that have happened? It's not just uh, that the earthquakes were near this sea, uh, also known as uh, Lake Kinneret. They were right beneath it. So the epicenter of the earthquakes were directly beneath the basin of, of the sea. There's one data point correlating that. Yeah. (laughs) So the funny thing about these earthquakes is this region, the Levant, is no stranger to seismic activity throughout history, recorded history. There have been a lot of very large earthquakes that have struck killing hundreds of thousands of people. So big earthquakes are no surprise here. What was surprising was that in 2013, there were a series of very small earthquakes um, in the range of a magnitude of about three to four. 
Those are referred to as an earthquake swarm. An earthquake swarm is defined as a series of of smaller earthquakes that aren't related to a bigger earthquake. So, you know, after a big earthquake, there's aftershocks and, and you can kind of relate those earthquakes to one another. In a swarm, it's just a bunch of small ones without a big one. Uh, swarms are unusual uh, in the recorded history of seismic activity in this region. So they were a little mysterious. They weren't sure what was going on with them. And that brings in the research, you know, that we're going to talk about today, where they they tried to time some human activities to when these swarms happened. Right, that's correct. Earthquake researchers have known for a while that when you inject water into the ground, which is something that happens with fracking, they inject wastewater into the ground to break up the rock and get access to the oil and gas that's trapped in the rock. Uh, They know that that can cause earthquakes. They've seen it in Oklahoma, probably most famously. But what's, what's been less talked about within the community of seismologists is whether or not taking water out of the ground can, can cause earthquakes. And it's not unheard of, but it's, it's sort of an understudied facet of earthquakes. So how would that work with respect to the Sea of Galilee? Yeah, so the Sea of Galilee is a, a huge freshwater source for Israel. And at one time, it was providing up to a third of all domestic water in Israel. Wow. So, yeah, it's a huge, huge amount of water that's coming out of it. And in around the the 1980s and 90s, they realized that the water level was dropping quite precipitously in the lake as the population boomed and as there was a large drought in the region that's still ongoing to this day. And government officials decided that they were going to encourage people to, instead of getting their water from the lake, to instead pump the groundwater from around the lake in the aquifer mm-hmm. that's uh, around the lake. So they started telling people to do this in the 1990s, and the lake levels flattened out and it stopped falling. So there was kind of a success story for the lake itself in terms of preventing the water level from falling too much more. So what happened in 2013 was there was a geologist with the Geological Survey of Israel named Nadav Wetzler, and he got to wondering whether or not this earthquake swarm, this sort of unusual seismic activity that was going on in this country, might have been related to the groundwater extraction uh, that has been going on increasingly since the 1990s. So how do they go about trying to show that there was a relationship between these two events? Sure. So they went and they checked records. There's uh, about two to five times a year the Geological Survey will conduct aquifer surveys and will um, check the aquifer levels. And what they noticed when they compared the timing is both in 2013 and in 2018, there were sharp drops in the groundwater level followed very quickly by these earthquakes. Do they think that it's the the sharp, the speed with which the water is withdrawn, or do they think it's how much is withdrawn? So there's like a certain level past which you start to get the shaky ground. Sure. So they think it's both the the speed and the amount, because there were other times when you would have drops over kind of a slower period of time, or you'd have other quick drops, but not as much. And what they think triggered these was the fact that it was uh, a lot of water happening over a relatively short period of time. And what's the model for that when it comes to understanding the seismicity? Like how can changing the water in the ground possibly spur an earthquake? If you think about how the forces work with inside the rocks, if you have all this water in there, the water is uh, pushing on the rocks. It's providing pressure and, and force underneath the ground on either side of the faults where the two tectonic plates are kind of locked together. You have the water pushing the rocks 
on either side of it together, creating sort of a, a locking mechanism. And so what happens if you pull the water out, it sort of loosens the forces and allows the rocks to relax away from one another. And that allows the tectonic plates to shift and, and cause an earthquake. This isn't just any fault, right? This is a pretty big fault. Running underneath the Sea of Galilee is the Dead Sea Fault. And the Dead Sea Fault is uh, one of the world's major fault lines, and that's separating the Arabian and the African tectonic plates, which are two very large uh, tectonic plates, continental plates. The Dead Sea Fault is uh, what's known as a slip strike fault. And that means that you have two continental plates that are locked together, and one's trying to go one way, one's trying to go the other way. And if there is some kind of pressure release that allows the tectonic plates to slip past one another. That's when you have a, a really rapid slip of the Earth's crust, and that is what causes the earthquake. These are small quakes that we've been talking about, but you know, is there a possibility that a really strong quake could occur because of this mechanism, this removal of the groundwater? Uh, yes, absolutely. And so one of the most important aspects of understanding seismicity is that earthquakes can cause other earthquakes. So just because you have kind of a small slip, that can trigger a larger slip. If you think about just kind of the momentum of large things in motion, once they start moving, it's easier for them to keep moving. And so a small slip of these continental plates can lead to much larger ones. And that is always a fear. That's a fear in the back of uh, seismologists' minds when they see these small quakes. How about your mind, Mike? You're reporting from San Diego, where there is a, also a famous fault in the state of California. And there's also a paucity of water at times. Is this something that they're worried about there? This is. Uh, so, of course, the big fault in California is the San Andreas. And the San Andreas is also a uh, slip strike fault. In many ways, it's very similar to the Dead Sea Fault, except that it's about 10 times more powerful or has the uh, capacity to be about 10 times more powerful than the Dead Sea Fault. The big concern here in California uh, that these researchers were highlighting is that we face a lot of the same drought concerns and a lot of the same groundwater extraction concerns that happen to be next to an even larger and potentially more dangerous fault in, in the San Andreas. So uh, what the researchers want us to know is that groundwater extraction very well might be a player in the seismicity game. And that's something that is a little underappreciated right now. Uh, people know that injecting water can lead to earthquakes, but they want to get the word out that taking water out can also lead to some, some quakes. And the problem is just even if it leads to just a small quake, these smaller quakes can lead to larger ones as well. Okay. So is there more research that needs to be done to strengthen this relationship? Or is this something that researchers will just keep monitoring, you know, as groundwater extraction continues around the world as people start to run out of clean water? A little bit of both. Uh, one of the things that the authors wanted to emphasize was that because they were only looking at, uh, you know, two data points uh, with one particular fault, they couldn't really create a statistical relationship here. It's sort of a sample size of, of one fault and two quakes, and that's just not enough to really come up with a definitive statistical argument that this is definitely related to the groundwater extraction. But they say that uh, the model makes sense. And some of the other researchers that I talked to and asked them about this, they said that they're pretty sure that that model is what's going on, that it was the groundwater extraction that had led to these smaller quakes. And, you know, whether or not that will hold for other faults, uh, it kind of remains to be seen. But there's no reason uh, that it wouldn't. Mike, before I let you go, I really want to ask you about what's called earthquake weather. 
People have tended to think that during hot, dry conditions that there is a higher tendency for earthquakes to happen. And for many years, geologists have said, that's a bunch of hooey. That's just a bunch of um, folk. Something you'd see in the farmer's almanac. Exactly. And the, the thought there was that there's no possible way that something like weather could influence the crust of the earth. And that if anything, the reason that people thought that earthquake weather might be a thing was because during hot, dry conditions, you're more likely to be sitting around less active and you might just be more likely to feel them when they do happen. So <laughs> kind of a um, observer effect. Exactly. An observer effect. But when you actually look at the statistics in California specifically, you do tend to see just slightly more earthquakes occurring during the summer than during the winter. It's small and it's subtle, but it is a statistically significant factor. And what uh, this researcher I talked to, Roland Bergman at uh, UC Berkeley, said was that, well, maybe this might be uh, part of the subtle reason why there are more earthquakes during the summer is we pump a lot more groundwater during the summer when it's there's no rainwater to rely on. California is most of the summer gets practically no rainfall. And so it's much more reliant on on groundwater. And so if you are pumping groundwater more during the summer and it's causing slightly more tremors to happen as a result, you might get what looks like earthquake weather during the summer. Hmm. Another reason to spend my winters in California, not my summers. <laughs> as if you needed another one. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Mike. All right. You're welcome, Sarah. Michael Price is a freelance science writer based in San Diego, California. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for an interview with Adrian Baez Ortega about an extremely long-lived transmissible cancer. This week's episode is sponsored in part by PNAS's Science Sessions. Science Sessions are short five-minute conversations with brilliant scientific minds. In less time than it takes to drink a cup of coffee, you can explore new worlds, discover big ideas, and learn something new. Subscribe to Science Sessions on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're going to talk about this paper on the evolution and expansion of a dog cancer. This is a transmissible venereal cancer that has been around for thousands of years. Adrian Bias Ortega and colleagues write about the evolutionary history of this cancer, its spread, and what it can tell us about human cancer. Hi, Adrian. Hello. So how old, roughly, how old is this cancer thought to be? How long has it been dividing? So based on our estimates, it should be between 4,000 and 8,500 years old. But we, we keep revising this estimate with each new work. So uh, until a couple of years ago, it used to be 11,000 before yeah. it was maybe 100,000. So, so it keeps getting shorter, but it's probably in that range, 4,000 to 8,000. What do you think it is? Is it a cancer? Is it an organism? Is it a parasite? How do you think of this? So they start as cancers. And today, when we look at them, they look like cancers. Mm -hmm. but once you study how they live and how they spread, their ecology is actually the ecology of a parasite, of a unicellular parasite. And interestingly, if you look from an evolutionary point of view, once these tumors start jumping from dogs to dogs, their ecology becomes disconnected from their original species. Mm -hmm. In evolutionary terms, they become new species. Huh. This is not just a dog cell. This is a new thing because it can never become a dog again. It cannot, it cannot mate with a dog. 
and it cannot really be called a dog. These transmissible cancers are really new species which always behave as parasites of their own species. Because of its great age, because it started, you know, with one dog cancer cell somewhere in Asia, it carries all this history in its genome. And what you did in this paper was you looked at many cells from modern dogs, you know, these cancer cells from modern dogs. What was your study sample like? Where did all these dog cancers come from? In this particular study, we looked at 546 tumors, and they come from 43 countries, I think. They all come from, from vets who have clinics, or they work in, in the field, controlling the populations of free-roaming dogs in different countries. They send us samples voluntarily. By this, by the generosity of the vets in all over the world, we have so far, I think, 2,600 of wow. these tumors from literally every, every inhabited continent. What kind of information can you get when you look at the tumors from these modern dogs? What can you tell about the past history of this cancer? Well, it's a bit like when you study the, um, the evolution of different species. If you look at a human and a mouse and you compare the DNA, you can see the divergence between them and you can estimate how long their common ancestor lived. So this is a very similar thing, but instead of being mutations accumulated in, in the whole species, there are mutations um, accumulated by individual tumors. So once you put all these tumors together and you compare the sequences, you get the cancerous evolutionary tree, and it looks very much like, like the tree of species. But it's also mapped to the expansion of the cancer through continents. When you look at the genomes of these tumor cells, so they've evolved away from each other or they've drifted away from each other genetically, what can it tell you about the history of dogs? What can it tell you about the movement of dogs over the face of the earth? Well, it tells you quite interesting things. It tells you about the movements of those dogs who carried the tumors in history, not, not all the dogs. Right. It doesn't tell you much about the origin of the European breeds. So we know the tumor started in Asia, and we can see that the tumor stayed in Asia for thousands of years, and we believe it was probably an isolated population of dogs. And then we see the tumor coming into Europe about a thousand years ago. And then we see a very striking thing, which is the tumor was introduced into the Americas from Europe almost exactly 500 years ago. Hmm. So that's one of the most uh, remarkable things. It goes in, in pace with history. That also gave us confidence that our method to estimate the age of the lineage was correct, because this jump from Europe to America could only have happened 500 years ago huh. at most. Right. And, and not earlier. One thing you looked at when it comes to the spread of this cancer was the signature of UV exposure. And what that can tell you is where, on the terms of latitude, you are. How, how were you able to make that correlation? So we took groups of tumors from, from different countries. We selected only the tumors for which we can be quite certain that this is a local population of tumors which has been in the same location for decades or for centuries, if we can. And then we look at the mutations which have happened in those last hundred years in each country. And then we know the locations because um, the vets provide us with latitude and longitude, for example. So we try to look at altitude. We try to look at sunshine hours per country. And only latitude seems to have an effect on how many mutations you get from UV light from the sun. Mm -hmm. So what can you do with that information now that you have this correlation between latitude and the number of UV mutations in the cancer cell? So apart from describing the correlation, which has never been done yeah. before, so what we did was to use that relationship between where you are and how many sunlight mutations you get to estimate where the tumor was originally. 
because we don't know where the tumor arose exactly, but we can measure how many mutations it has from UV in its early history. So we got an, an estimate for the range of latitudes where it spent the first thousands of years. And that goes from maybe southern India to southern China. And then you can see how UV changes as the tumor moves around, around the Earth. So, yeah. for example, tumors which are in, in Russia, they have virtually no UV at all. And, and tumors close to the equator, they have almost only UV. And you can see this, the change in the patterns of mutation very strikingly. And that, that was the motivation for trying to get a numerical relationship. You are also interested in understanding what happens to a mammalian cell that goes on for so many generations. One surprise here is how long it keeps dividing. But E. coli divides and its daughter cells keep on going and going and going. How is what happens with this cell different from what happens with a bacteria that just keeps dividing? The cancer cells, they are similar to bacteria in the sense that they reproduce asexually. So they have been from a mammalian sort of life with sexual reproduction to a bacterial form of life, like a cell line. The difference is bacteria keep competing against each other and they keep being exposed to natural selection from their environment. But we don't see this happening in this tumor. So what we see is that CTBT is accumulating mutations in most of its genes and it doesn't seem to care. Right. We don't see selection trying to protect certain genes unless those genes are very, very necessary for, for cellular life. These cells have a lot of mutations. Yes, yes. If you look at the entire genome, each tumor has about 2 million mutations. Whoa. You know, a breast cancer might have 2,000. Yeah. You know, a bacteria is going to adapt to its environment and try to continue to evolve. But what about a cancer cell? So uh, that's not this kind. So like a human cancer. Do we see the same kind of positive and negative selection on the genes in those kinds of cells? In cancer cells, you see more very strong selection for specific changes that make the cells more proliferative, so more, more aggressive. So mm -hmm. If you look at a human cancer, you will see different populations of cancer cells and they compete against each other for growth. It's a bit of um, a war of clones. Hmm. Uh, so you see, you see this selection going across time over years on how the cancer becomes more and more fit, more and more aggressive. Yeah, it gets good but, at growing, it gets good at using as much resources around it as it can and out-competing its neighbors. Yes. For this tumor, because there is an extra step, which is transmission from one dog to the next, and that is a huge bottleneck. And each tumor has to go through this bottleneck. So we think that this kind of selection is disturbed by this, by this kind of bottleneck. Huh. So we don't really see either new functions being acquired by the tumor or specific kinds of genes being protected, except for the ones that really need to be protected. You call it a bottleneck, but you could also call it a, an escape hatch. The cancer doesn't have to succeed so much that it kills its host. It can just kind of hang out and then jump jump to the next dog, right? Yeah, actually this cancer, um, in the majority of cases, is not very aggressive. So it depends a lot on the state of the dog. So if the dog is in very poor shape, the cancer will progress faster. But normally the cancer hangs like, like a parasite. It will not proliferate very fast, but it will stay confined and growing quite slowly. And we think this is probably an evolved mechanism of ensuring transmission to a new host, because those cancers which are very aggressive, they won't be able to get transmitted. This is, uh, you know, a really 
crazy cell at this point. It's got lots and lots of mutations, probably surface ones as well. Why doesn't the host dog's immune system say, oh, what is this? This is definitely not one of my cells and, and just get rid of it. But that's what you would expect from from knowledge of biology. Yeah. <laughs> this, is what happens in, this is what happens in organ transplants. Mm-hmm. We think that the cancer creates a small environment around it where the immune system is hampered somehow. So it suppresses the, the action of the immune system locally. But we don't really know exactly how. So we know that it doesn't express um, certain surface proteins which are needed for recognition. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really explain the full picture of why the tumor is never recognized by any dog, mm-hmm. even by any breed of, of dog. Oh, it's very odd. There's this question about neutral drift in your paper. Can you talk about what that means and what you're trying to find out about it? In evolution, neutral drift just means evolution is kind of random. So evolution is dominated by processes other than mutations being selected for or selected against. Mm-hmm. We, we have the impression that evolution, currently at least, it's not having a direction. The tumor is evolving in the sense that it's changing its genome. Yeah. But it's not becoming fitter or it's not, it's not evolving in any particular direction. So we believe that this tells us that the tumor just became so fit to its current niche as a parasite. And it learns so, so quickly how to avoid triggering a response from the dog and how to avoid posing a, a, a pressure on, on the survival of dogs. That right now they are in, in this sort of evolutionary balance where neither the dogs evolve against the tumor no, the tumor evolves to keep in pace with the, huh. the dogs. And since the different tumors are physically isolated from each other, there is also no competition between, between tumor clones, except those in each individual dog. And then a very few cells will be passed from that dog to a new dog. So basically, all this inter-tumor competition that is talked about in human cancer, it doesn't have an effect on the long term because it's canceled by these bottlenecks. Well, so is there anything that you feel that we've learned from this dog cancer that can be applied to human cancers? Well, there is something interesting, which is the fact that um, this cancer has sort of tamed itself to become quite um, mild and become sort of a parasite and coexist with the host. The fact that this cancer can, can survive on dogs and actually coexist with them, it's in line with uh, some lines of research which are proposing that we should try to treat cancer to turn it into a chronic disease, to tame it, not try to eradicate it, because that, in many cases, that doesn't really work. That breeds resistance in the tumor. Right. So you kill all the cells which are susceptible to treatment, and then the cancer normally comes back with a vengeance. So there are some people who are proposing a better strategy could be not trying to, to cure the tumor, but to keep it at bay, and manage it in a way that it becomes less aggressive with time. And this basically proves that those cancers can actually exist. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you very much. Adrian Baez-Ortega is a graduate student in the Transmissible Cancer Group at the University of Cambridge. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. 
The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.